0: Hello and welcome to Can't Find My Way Home, the podcast where expats from around the globe talk about the music and art scene in their adopted home. I'm your host, Craig. In this episode of Can't Find My Way Home, I was joined by Gary Hurlston. Gary shares with us his musical journey. From first picking up the acoustic guitar after hearing Bert Jansch's Angie, to joining local bands and the numerous styles and genres of music that he's played over the years. Gary takes us through the recording process for both of his recent solo albums, the locations, the musicians, and of course, during these COVID times, some unique circumstances along the way. This talk of touring throughout China, the Chinese Glastonbury, Staying in yurts, the transient nature of being an expat musician and being in a band, playing on the most unusual of stages, and the appetite for Western music in the country at that time. In the top five, we blather on about getting lost in music, armies of songwriters, playing at the WOMAD Festival and for the British Council, and the joy of Snarky Puppy. All this and just how many musicians can you fit into a tiny desk performance? Let's get right to it. Gary Hurlston.
1: Well, to begin with, the, what what happened was um, I had a friend of mine just uh, one day just wandered in with this album by a guy uh, with the name of Bert Jansch. He, he played there, so I'd never heard anything like it, you know. And uh, and he played me a song called Angie, which, which he was raving about, and it was uh, it was a song I think it was originally covered by David Graham. And I thought, wow, that's great. I I, I was. I just thought it was remarkable. I thought it was a wonderful thing. And I thought, I'm going to learn to play the guitar. And it was a di- it, w- it was just one of those decisions, you know, I'm going to play the guitar. And the guy was a guitar player. And, he- and what he did is... He- it gave me a few lessons, and I started off. But unfortunately, um, I spent all my time learning to play this song, this andy. <laughs> it's quite complicated.
0: It is right. I mean, Betty Edge is one of a kind, I would that, say. That was, you know, that
1: was the first thing that I learned to play. Well, it took months and months and months, and it was it was a bit pedestrian, you know, in the way I played it. But it was a party piece. I couldn't play anything else, but I could, I could have a reasonable <laughs> go at this. And that, that's really what got me started. And then, you know, I, I, I'd listen to Bert Jansch and try and work out what he was doing. And, and I, I spent years just developing a technique from there. So th- that's how it started. And then I was asked to go along for a, a rehearsal with a local band, which I went to, and then subsequently was asked to come along as a bass player. Which was interesting because I wasn't a bass player. They obviously thought my guitar playing was crap.
0: Um, <laughs> Six strings, four strings. What's the difference here? You know, it's
1: less damage with four. <laughs> so that's the way it was, and I became a bass player. And I, I was I was a bass player all oh, for a long time. So that that's what happened, and that took me into playing with well, all sorts of bands. Really, I played in you know, uh, trad jazz bands. I played. Uh, The kind of experimental music with a guy from Keele University called Tim Suster. And I was playing folk music and I was playing rock music and I was playing trad band music and I was playing show music. And I just got into this groove where I liked, I mean, I liked the kind of the challenge of playing different things. And it really helped me to progress and, and understand the way that songs music was constructed particularly trad jazz i i I learned an awful lot about you know chord sequences and and what worked and you know uh, a a lot of the patterns are are quite similar in many of the trad jazz songs so that really helped me and then i stopped playing rock music i just got bored with it really um i played some reggae i would do anything you know it was it was uh and, and at the time, I was using it as a, a kind of secondary income, uh, but I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed being on stage. I enjoyed the whole thing, and uh, and, and it kind of went from there. Uh, I just grew and grew, and but I'd always had this kind of diverse approach to you know, I'd have a go at anything. I wasn't afraid to just say, "Well, no, that's not my bag. I don't do that." It was anything could be my bag, and and that that's the way. I think I've kept that approach throughout my whole uh, music
0: career. And so, uh, so the, the last album that uh, I can remember the title of was "How to Smile Upside Down." But there was an album before that, right? It was.
1: Uh, I made an album in. You know, it was 2012, 2013, which is the first thing I'd ever done. You know, I'd never. I mean, I'd had music. I've had songs of mine covered by other artists by then. But I'd never made anything myself. And that, so that was the first album. That was 2012, 13, which was made in Saikong in Hong Kong. So that was in the New Territories. And that was quite, it was quite interesting, you know, having, because I live living in China. I was going across the border. I lived in Shenzhen, which is right on the border mm-hmm, right. with Hong Kong. Um, and I was going over the border every week. But I was also taking music, <laughs> Chinese musicians with me. And, of course, it created all sorts of problems at the border because in order to get across the border, they had to say they were they got a flight somewhere else. You know, and it was a kind of stop off place. And some of them, one guy turned up, <laughs> he turned up with with just his instruments, not, no suitcase and, and no other clothes and uh, hugely turfed. From as you know, it was a, a whole set fiddle player, and we had terrible trouble getting him across the border. I won't say money changed hands, but but you know, we got through in the Some
0: agreements were made. Yeah,
1: agreements were
0: made.
1: <laughs> we used to, I mean it, it was all the time. We'd take different people with me, and and there was always an issue at, at the Shenzhen border. But for some reason, we always managed to get through, and we always got to the um, the recording studio. And that that was great because there was kind of a very wide range of styles they had, which really suited me down to the ground, you know. it was We didn't really, we we had structures, but we didn't really know what might happen. It depended what the other musicians did, and that that kind of gave us, you know, a direction.
0: The producer, was it a, a Western guy, or was he from Hong Kong, or did that make a difference, you know, that kind of influence? The, not just the musicians you were working with, but the, the guy you know, the... I worked
1: with was—he's uh, American from Virginia. Peter Sher. He was in his own right. He was—he'd been a, the principal bass player in the Hong Kong Philharmonic. He didn't want to do that for whatever reason, and he was on the jazz circuit as a double bass player. But he got this—he set up the studio, and it was quite a remarkable place. And uh, he was trying to, you know, develop it and grow it, and you know, have different artists working with him. So I was, I think, one of the the first people I mean, that w- went there. He was, uh, he was wonderful. He was, he was great guy to work with. He still is because. From that moment, we've had a you know he's not just a producer; he's a personal friend now, which is which is great. So he got very good contacts in New York, and his brother was uh, a guy called uh, Tony Share, who I'd never heard of. I didn't, I didn't know him, you know. Later on, he you know Peter would say, particularly on the second album, let let Tony come along and and do some work. But I didn't realize that that Tony Share was was. Nora jones is on the road guitar player and he'd work with bill frizzell and you know all sorts of people and, and, and he's a remarkable musician great to work with so let's uh, luck, a look right <laughs> you know? well you know it was i mean it was just making a, a an association forming a friendship and all kinds of opportunities arose because he got good contacts and i mean particularly with the second album, it was made during, you know, a period when everybody was in lockdown. So, you know, all musicians all over the place, they just weren't working. No one was making any money anywhere.
0: No, exactly. And it was
1: really quite hard for them. So to find session musicians actually wasn't that difficult. They they were all looking for work. And so we managed to get some great people
0: to come along and play on the album, you know. Would you say it was like the difficult second album? I mean, COVID aside, but... As is the kind of musical cliche. Was it the difficult second album putting it all together?
1: Difficult at all. Actually, the first one was was possibly more difficult because b- because we went in with the idea that we we would let the musicians speak for themselves, you know, and, and it was we didn't try to dictate the direction they took. And then did it deliberately, you know, because I, I love it when People come and express things in their own way. So that was, for me, that was wonderful. But, but sometimes they did express themselves in very unusual ways. in <laughs> not ways that maybe not you were
0: expecting, you know.
1: It certainly wasn't, no. The horsehead fiddle player was, also did some throat singing on, on, you know, part one of his parts. He, he just said, can I put some throat singing on? Which is, yeah, you know, let, let, let's do what do. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: and there's the Mongolian... But... but oh. You know that was you know, a Mongolian traditional instrument. The he was playing this other. Uh, I was just reading on the website. You know about the.
1: It's it's kind of it it's somewhere. It's like a fiddle. It, yeah, it's a it's a three string instrument from memory. Um, and it, it, I mean he, he's playing. There's uh, several songs where where he's. He's playing it almost like a violin. He's very accomplished, you know, and uh, it sounds violiny, y cello-y. That's the sort of, uh, when you know, when he's trying to play it in a Western style, when he's playing it in a Mongolian style, because he, he was a Mongolian, you know. It, it sounds quite
0: different. Because it's, it's great that there's all these kind of eclectic, Touches to the music and to the the creation of the albums and so on, you know, and I think that really kind of shines through.
1: But the second one was far more, you know, mainstream. I think it wasn't... He he didn't have the same kind of... I had a different energy than the first one. Right. And I think he probably would have had broader appeal. But between the two, I I think the first one gave me more pleasure because I, I guess... Partly
0: because the experiences, you know, it it was more memorable. But anywhere you have to go through a border control to kind of get to, to get to the records, you know, adds a little, an element of anxiety, danger, excitement, whatever, pick whatever adjective you like, you know, but it gives you this uh, sense of drama to it, you know, it adds to the mix.
1: It was a bit harem scarum, you know, (laughs) what are we going to get this time? And uh, and that that was great. But the second one, I think was far more controlled. I was trying to, bring things down to i realized i think that you know whilst you know my idea of what i like to listen to can be can be very diverse maybe you know we're we're all diverse but maybe it was just a bit too (laughs) wide i mean because there's dub reggae on that first one and you know there's all sorts of stuff going down whereas the second one i think was a bit more compact it wasn't that the spectrum wasn't
0: quite as wide. But, of course, there are the two different pieces of what recorded at different times in your life as well, right? So you're getting the kind of where you are at that particular I'm, moment I'm, as well.
1: i mean in, in the UK, you know. I, I mean, I don't really have a handy said fiddle player just in the No, name.
0: right. <laughs> it's about to come back, you know. Down <laughs> to the shops and see if anyone's hanging about, you know. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier, though, something about the... Um, you'd already written songs, so this is kind of going back to before the... China, stroke, Hong Kong thing. But reading through your website, there was this uh, you'd written a couple of songs and they'd been yeah, picked up by MCA?
1: It, yeah, they, I mean, the band that I played with, uh, the band that I auditioned for that I mentioned, I, I stayed with them for quite a long time. And then I left, but just as I left, I'd written one song. i have written this other song that, that they wanted to do, and then I d- departed. Both of those songs were chosen. As the, the single that they were going to put out on ECM or something like—I can't remember which label it was. MCA. Yeah, but they ended up uh, being released in Europe and apparently doing quite well. And I don't, I can't remember seeing any money from that. You know?
0: <laughs> Surprisingly, you know, it's kind of disappeared in a rabbit hole.
1: You know, it never happens in music, does it? Really? Well, but, but it was quite nice, you know, to get them to get them published, and I, I don't think anybody was buying a desert island, you know, uh, uh, out of the the proceeds, so you know, it didn't really matter that much.
0: Would you say you're more of a your style, like what you like to play? Are you more of an acoustic player, or are you more electric, or uh, how would you describe yourself? A, a vocalist as well.
1: Yeah, I, I now I'm primarily a singer songwriter using acoustic instruments i used to play electric but i sold my my fender Strat. i made a commitment to acoustic music bought myself a tailor which is a really beautiful instrument mm. and that's you know what i like to do i like i like acoustic uh sounds but about i don't know 15 years ago i was very much into electric sounds and doing all sorts of electronic but but you know, it just washed over me and I thought, no, I, I want to go back and just just work with acoustic instruments.
0: See if we just kind of go back to your your time in China. There was uh, one of the things I read you were talking about, like going on tour. So this was about 2010, between 2010 and 2012 or run about that time. <laughs> Yeah, how did that come about, like touring in China?
1: When we was in China, um, I got married. My wife used to promote bands in China. So <laughs> it was a very good reason to be with her. Well, it was also a very good reason. to be
0: with her. <laughs> right. but, 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 Another reason.
1: That was another reason. <laughs> you know, um, and she had contacts with uh, uh, the MIDI festival, uh, and the Midi Festival is like the Glastonbury of China. Uh, she knew a lot of musicians in Beijing and Shanghai. They, but, you know, I used to wander around all over China with her and um, we would bump into these people and, you know, I, I, I'd get to jam with them. So after a few years, I, I got to know some of them. Um, then we became friends. And, uh, that was partly how they came to play on the album once the album was made then uh, you know a tour was organized to try and promote that album so that's how you know we we did a tour of Beijing Shanghai we were in Yunnan we were in Guangzhou we were in Shenzhen um we went out to Hebei where there was a a big concert taking place, where he based right on the verge of the grasslands, Mongolia, and that was kind of an interesting festival because one we got well, we got very well paid for it, which which I wasn't used to, you know, <laughs> I wasn't used to getting well paid, uh, but we 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 did get very well paid. We're just
0: getting paid, actually, you know, <laughs> yeah, In some paid. places, you know, I...
1: but we got well paid and. Um, and he and the money that we made from the one gig allowed me to like bring in the musicians. So we were flying in musicians from Beijing and putting them in hotels. You know, the, it was it was real rock and roll stuff. But eBay was 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 interesting because it was right out there on the grasslands, and we were staying in yurts. So so the, the, the you know the accommodation was yurts. Mm. This kind of Ethnic, you know, round. And I thought, yeah, this sounds interesting. And then when we got there, the yurts were actually um, concrete. And they, mm-hmm. they had bars in them and <laughs> TV. You know, it was completely different than I imagined it would be. But very comfortable. Uh, because I'd actually stayed in the yurt, a real one, and uh, right on the edge of the Gobi Desert. Uh, and it, it it wasn't the most comfortable night uh, i never spent anywhere but, but but this was like you know four-star hotel stuff so, so that was great i don't know people were very nice we were we were treated very well the performance given that I, I took a bunch of musicians that i picked up on the way in beijing we rehearsed twice in beijing came to hebei we rehearsed in the year before going on uh, and, th- and then we did the gig and it went well it you know it, it could have fallen apart but it, it didn't it actually gelled and everybody really put the heart and, and mind into it it was great I mean one of the things I, I don't know whether you agree you know as an expat musician mm. you're in a different country you're trying to but you, you know you're trying to make music but musicians well people are coming in. they're always in transit you know exactly, they, yeah. not, they don't stay anywhere. So if you've got a band, the first thing you have to do is accept that all band members are going to be... They're always temporary. That was one of the reasons why, after a while, you just get used to it. And, of course, you're the only permanent member. You've done it all before, so you are well rehearsed. But you get used to just pulling people in at the last minute and um, jumping on a stage and fingers crossed and off you go, you know, and hope it all works out. So just. I mean the number of drummers that we had, you know, it was it was very
0: Spinal Tap.
1: It was more, like, it was more Spinal Tap than Spinal Tap. <laughs>
0: there
1: were so many and bass players. We got through bass players and drummers all the time, and we we didn't ever had a format. It was some sometimes I would work with uh, a violin player. I like violin players, so there was a guy called Raoul Solis May that used to come on. He was a great violin player, but if he couldn't make it, we had a trumpet player. <laughs> If a trumpet player couldn 't make it, then you know we 'd find somebody else that it was always evolving, always changing, and the musicians always changed and I think i, I think originally you, you read uh, an article in the south china uh,
0: morning post morning
1: post yeah well that that was an interesting gig because that was uh, that was in Johai, which is in in the Guangdong province, right on the seaside, and it was a kind of New Year celebration. And they wanted they wanted some foreign musicians, you know, to, I don't know why, they, they just thought it would help to sell tickets or something. But when we arrived for, for that, I arrived with uh, a whole new band, <laughs> a whole new band. It wasn't just some of the players, all of them. All were, of
0: them, yeah. You
1: know, and so I get, there's a guy called Greg Merrill who was a, a trumpet player, a new drummer, Uh, Tom Bird, who actually wrote the article for The Morning Post, Tom had played a a couple of times with me, but but he wasn't a permanent member. We had, uh, like, two rehearsals (laughs) to do this gig. But when we arrived, the first thing that we we, we recognised was it was on a scale much bigger than we'd anticipated. We thought it would be, like, a little marquee on the beach and people with barbecues and things like that, and it was no big deal, you know. Actually, when we arrived, it was a ship moored in the sea that had been turned into this spectacular stage with TV cameras and, you know, it was...
0: Bells and whistles, eh? It sounds it great.
1: A monster, you know? It was a real monster. I did the sound check and, uh, and half the band were missing. <laughs> there was no sound... You know, I was the only one doing the sound check and the, the band were, were all over the place on boats in the sea, you know, and, uh, trying to get there. Uh and then when we finally got <clears throat> out to play, um, it—I mean, the scale of the thing—but we just became very clear. There was, there was I think, between ten and fifteen thousand people in the audience. It was being televised live for national TV.
0: <laughs> no pressure, there, dude.
1: The Musicians were just fearful. They were fearful, you know. And it was, come on, let's, let's do this. You know, we, we can do it, you know. And, and on we went. And it's surprising, you know, when, when you're frightening people enough. <laughs> they often rise to the occasion. And, and bless them, all those musicians, they played the hearts out, you know. And they were convincing. They fretted, I think, a lot before we actually started. But we got through it. Uh, and it was a great credit to them. It went well. It may not have gone exactly as we planned it to go, but it, it went in a direction that was all right. You know, so that was that was a great, great gig. And it was—I mean, it was the biggest audience I'd ever played to. There were cameras, and there was a press call. You know, everything that you, that you'd expect. You know, I mean, we, we did—I think—become rock stars for one night. You know, when we was
0: so yeah. just do it for
1: one night. That's okay. I mean, wherever we played, if it was a public performance, then we we had to had to provide your passport. You'd have to show your visa. I mean, in the end, we were all like, no, no I mean, I, I, half the time, I didn't have a performance visa. I had work permits, as most of the guy, most of the people in the band had work permits but they didn't have a performance permit. So what we were doing was, strictly speaking, illegal. But like most things in China, you know, it's only illegal if somebody decides that they're going to uh, enforce the law. And they didn't, you know. But what they did do was make sure that, you know, you, you've got the passport, that, you know, you had to provide all the lyrics and, and just pretty much undertake to behave yourself and, and not do anything, you know, that, that would upset the authorities. I mean, there were certain occasions when we we were booked and we di- we went we jumped through all these hoops, but we, we simply at the last minute we just got a message saying it's all off. I mean, one, one time in Shenzhen, we we were actually in the van going to the gig, we, we were just about to go through the, the gates, <laughs> we got this message saying that's it, lads. You know, it's not all to Happened, happened yeah, you know. and that happened several times to us. So obviously somebody somewhere you know I thought about it and thought now that well, we're not gonna let them do this but that was most of the time that never happened you know it was
0: it was okay I have some friends in Guangzhou Guangzhou. also in the, the south of uh, China and a couple of them play in uh, one of the local bars there in a and like a covers band kind of thing but uh, speaking of them they said the reaction they get from the kind of younger, Chinese audience, I guess that's primarily who they're going to find in a pub or a bar that, you yeah, know, there is quite into the music and they, they enjoy themselves and it's like maybe for some of them they're hearing things for the first time you know not not rock and roll per se but this particular uh, song a David Bowie song or a Depeche Mode song or whatever it may be you know
1: well you know it was Wham! I think that started it all after the workers' work Sten- right. maybe, yeah you know? but but yes there was, there was a, a lot of interest in, in western music I think in the early days, it was quite difficult to to get Western music. And I think I was probably, I was fortunate, I was lucky to be in China during what, I think the article in the, in the Hong Kong Post sums it up very well. It, it was like the golden years, the opening up of China. Uh, people were interested. They, they were curious. Um, so we got opportunities. And I think now it's, probably more difficult has been like a tightening up of, of regulations so I think after I left since then it's become increasingly difficult and I certainly know some of the guys in Shenzhen have, have ended up being deported you know because they they didn't have performance uh, licenses and they, they were asked to move on so they, they left China so I th- I think we were just fortunate to, we were there at the right time doing the right thing and it wasn't by design it was just chance and i think for people now it's it's a lot more difficult and i think the rules are tighter but yes there was there was a, an appetite for western music and there was certainly a curiosity about what we did uh, and probably curiosity about us as well for me i found that to I mean, the net result was I made lots of friends. I made lots of uh, Chinese music friends, people that I'm still friends with, and it was uh, a great experience. And it was it was one where, you know, I got to travel China. I, I got to see the culture and experience the culture. And it, was, I think it's a it's far different experience than simply visiting for a couple of weeks. You you have far more understanding of the people and what you know that. What they're about. So uh...
0: I think you've seen it from a different perspective as well than, a, than yeah, a, someone who's there for a month or a couple of weeks. here yeah, because you do certain things, but if you're there, you're working there, your life's there, and then you become you become part of it, you know, you become part of that culture. To,
1: to be honest, it, it, it's as much a learning experience for me as it was for them, you know, because I got to listen to Mongolian music, you, you know, the plaintive cry of the Ahu. Uh, I performed with classical, traditional Chinese kind of singers, opera singers, um, and it was... You know, it was an opening up for me, and and just being aware of you know the different ways of doing things. And you see the musical score of a, a Chinese opera, and it's wow, you know, <laughs> it just sounds abstract. You're hearing it, but all the, all the players are following a score, you know, and it's massively complex. I think, and interesting,
0: you know. So, so, so great memories, anyway. Like, you know, life memories. What are you working on at the moment, Gary?
1: I'm working on uh new songs that i've written songs that um are going to be that i i've basically recorded and uh, they're with peter Scherer at the moment out out in uh in in the u s uh he'll be writing orchestral parts yeah i i i think for me you know writing songs and writing albums I, I, now i can't see the point in writing albums you know it's I, I it's just a a process which is just continuous and whilst for a commercial artist it might be a good idea i think for the rest of us you know it's you can just if you want to follow what i do uh then it, it's got a timeline but but it doesn't necessarily have to fall under the heading of one album it could just be that's it now you know it's just a mm. continuous you know
0: What's a guilty pleasure for you, Gary, musically?
1: A guilty pleasure? Well, indulging myself, really, in, um, you know, hiding myself away and just listening to something quite abstract would be... Uh, because I take time out, you know, just for me, um, I shouldn't really feel guilty about it, I suppose. But but no. sometimes you know, it, it goes, think
0: about something more from if I was to look through your playlist and then you think, oh, okay, what's this? <laughs> you know, from that from that aspect, as a guilty pleasure.
1: The, the other thing is uh, because I I love to play the guitar and and so and which is which is great, but I can get kind of lost in it, and if I'm I'm, I'm trying to perfect something i it can i just forget time exists it's the same with recording if i'm recording you know i'll i will i can keep doing a take until i think yeah that's i'm happy with that so all of those it's a kind of indulgence but it's one that that i'm
0: unlikely to stop i think tell us someone you don't get then who who do you think's a bit overrated or, or you just don't get them you know Guy no, with, no one's listening. there's only you and I, so we're all right. I, in, <laughs> the dog's here at my feet. So other than that, it's just I you know, and I.
1: Suffolk <laughs> <laughs> has most of his village, and he's got kind of red hair. and He plays the acoustic. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of. Ooh, thinking,
0: well, I wonder who. I wonder who that is. <laughs>
1: well, I, I don't need to mention that, but I think that uh, is slightly kind of overrated. I think he, 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 he does write good pop tunes, yeah,
0: but, but I think the world's, it's a broad church, isn't it, you know? And, exactly, right. But, <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of interesting thing, though, because apart, by all accounts, I don't know this firsthand, but by all accounts, Ed and what's with a, a team or a small army, if you will, of, of writers and all these things. So it's not really, the idea might originally be his, or I, I don't know how it works for him, but I believe it's there's a lot of people involved in the, the process of, There's a lot of, of people involved music. in
1: the process and, you know, uh I, I don't know, well, I mean, not there, but, but I, I mean, he's just released an album and I listened to a couple of tracks, but it, I, I, I just thought that, yeah, you could hear a lot of production work, you could hear a lot of kind of influences of other people in there. And, you know, it's... It, I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly not him anymore, just on his own. You know, it's on, like you say, it's a whole army of people making a contribution, most of whom are, will remain anonymous or, you know, n- never really get the credit for which they deserve. He's
0: picking up the cheques, you know. <laughs> he's picking- well, he's selling enough. He's selling enough. I was going to say records, but you know what I mean? He's selling enough music to, uh, yeah, in sure. concerts. I mean, the concerts are maybe what 60 70 quid a ticket or something. He's playing in Glasgow next. September, I think I saw it was it next summer, maybe in June or something. So I have to make sure I'm not in my hometown for, for that particular weekend. But okay, that's a, yeah. that's maybe more about me that you need to know. As an edge there we go. That's one. What about a, a venue you've played at, Gary? That's uh...
1: I didn't say that. You
0: did. Oh, I did. I'm, I'm okay with it. I've I've made my peace with it. Favorite venue, or maybe even a venue where you've seen someone. You know, it's a really. Great place either to play to perform or on the other hand, you know, to uh, to see a show.
1: There's the annual WOMAD. For me, uh, he he just if you like encapsulates all the things that I like about music because it's very diverse. You know, you're getting people from all over the world, different sorts of music, different sorts of bands, different experiences. It's cross-cultural. It's got a good vibe. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, that's as good as it gets. The occasional appearance of Peter Gabriel always helps as well, you know. Um, I I got to play there a couple of years back. It was in Molly's Bar, so it it wasn't a big deal. But I kind of really, for me, it was just, it was so lovely because i have been to Womad for many years, seeing bands in all sorts of weird, strange places. I can remember seeing a a reggae band on Morecambe Station, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was like... Wow, and it was great, (laughs) the gig was great, you know, great, but it was just so unusual, so I like that, I I like people messing about with, you know, with with backdrops and different venues, and uh, so, so WOMAD, yes, if you've not been, then it's well worth the effort.
0: What's your go to karaoke song, Gary.
1: (laughs) Oh, dear me. Um, well, um, probably something by the Beatles, I would imagine, because, uh, I mean, you know, if you were the crowd of people, invariably, they will know something by the
0: Beatles. Um. They're generally quite short as well, right? You get your three minutes in change, you know, sometimes even shorter. Yeah. Near the end of the career, probably a wee bit longer, but yeah, generally, they they keep within that nice time frame, the attention span. Yeah, yeah. And who doesn't like a yeah 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 or a la la la, right?
1: Yeah, well, it's got to be something like that, you know. It's got to be something that's that's known universally by all age groups, you know. And it's, uh, I, I mean, when, when, certainly when I was in China, you, you know, you were always asked to do Beatles songs and songs by Oasis. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You win some, you lose some. Eh? <laughs>
1: you lose some, you know. Anyway, but it, it, it was always like that, you know. I used to do some some stuff for the British Council there. They used to put on concerts. All right. And it, would, it was always well. You can come along. You, you can play some of your own stuff. That's great. But you've got to do three songs by the Beatles as well. And, and that, uh, you know that was as prescribed.
0: Yeah, I played at the the British Council. They just opened a new building in in Seoul. Oh, it's donkeys years ago now. Two thousand eight, maybe two thousand nine, something like that. But yeah, they wanted a British night, so I was in a band with three Canadians and myself. So we, we kind of—I don't know—we we didn't play Oasis funnily enough, but we played a whole a wide range of old and kind of new stuff and all that. Now it was great, a good night. Oh, I had mean, culture as a, for the as,
1: as a good you know possibility. I'd have to say karaoke. Uh, I, I would, I would. Like to do something like uh, oh, down,
0: James. Oh, yeah, good tune, just a great
1: tune, you know. It is, yeah, great,
0: definitely. Song. Last question for you, then, Gary tell us someone we should be listening to, someone that maybe we're not familiar with, but you're going to enlighten us and share that person with us. And right. okay. all the good stuff, well could be more than one, of course.
1: Well, for me, because it's somebody that I, I, I came to because one of the guys that have played with this band actually came and played on the album. But but the band is called Snarky Puppy. Oh, yeah. Snarky Puppy.
0: They play with uh, David Crosby, I think.
1: They play with all sorts of people. Yeah. Mm. Guest people coming in, and again, it very much fits in with my my way of thinking. But these are, you know, I mean, they're great musicians, and and they always seem to, you know, they they bring somebody along, and whether they're playing blues or they're playing something that's, that's more folk based or jazz based, uh, it's they're just wonderful musicians, um, and they've got a series of um, albums. Uh, but there's also performances on YouTube you can watch. Well worth going and having a look. Very diverse uh, and, and great. I think they did one of the, you know, the Tiny Desk performance? Yeah, right. Well, they, they've just done a Tiny Desk uh, performance. And it was just like... <laughs> remarkable you know it was.
0: some of those tiny desk ones are, are quite amazing like literally some of them are just one person in the in the little office but yeah I saw one last week or the week before a band called The War on Drugs and they had well they didn't do it in the offices of NPR they did it in their own rehearsal space somewhere in California with huge big a huge, big ribbon, all that, loads of stuff in it. but it was great though. My performance was brilliant. I think that's the, the,
1: the one. I think the, the, the one that, that Snaky Poppy had done. I think there were twelve musicians, or maybe <laughs> right. all, they're all gathered around this desk, and it looked really, really ridiculous, you know. And, and I think they got like a horn section going, and a couple of keyboards in there. And it, it was just great, you know. And then the but
0: well, just to show what you could do, right? You know,
1: yeah, and it was. uh I mean, I don't know who was on the sound desk, but they, they did a great job. You know, it was all mixed
0: really well. And... Uh, and <laughs> the sound know. engineers must have a nightmare when you see someone like this coming in, you know, 12 of them, you know. It's a nightmare because, you
1: know, you've just got people around the desk and, and you think, oh, God, now this is going to work, work, you know. But he did. So anyway... I think
0: to the kiosk, if, fantastic.
1: If, 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 you know, that would be my... Go to them, you know. Like go and have a listen to that, and you know, just have a have a listen to several things. It'll be something in there that, that you know floats you boat, really.
0: Excellent choice, snarky puppy. Nice one, Gary. Thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's been great it, catching up with you. Or maybe catch
1: up again at some point.
0: can follow can't find my way home on instagram at can't Talk find my way home on facebook at expat music pod and of course you can find us on spotify anchor.fm apple podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts from you'll find us there until the next one this is greg saying cheers